by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. There's a great set of games this weekend, two great Big Ten games, Bedlam, Cincinnati, UCF. We're going to talk about those later in the show. We're also going to discuss the South Carolina opening uh, now that Will Muschamp has been fired. But first, Bruce, there's something I think we need to address uh, right off the top. This is our first episode since a uh, USA Today bombshell came out on Monday. Uh, about LSU and uh, allegations of officials there mishandling complaints of sexual violence. And I'm just reading from the USA Today article here, which says that they found, and this all kind of started with uh, Darius Geis, but um, that at least nine football players have been reported to police for accusations of sexual misconduct and dating violence since Coach Ed Ogeron took over the team four years ago. Records show. The university is known to have disciplined only two of them, and one, former wide receiver Drake Davis, was not expelled until four months after he was convicted of physically abusing his former girlfriend. Bruce, you obviously know uh, Ed Ogeron as well as anybody from Meat Market and from um, writing his book with him uh, that came out this year. So obviously people are curious to hear what we have to say. Yeah, and it's it's obviously a disturbing story. Um to see. And I think it's disturbing on a lot of levels, not just from a football standpoint or an athletic department standpoint, but really from a university standpoint uh, at LSU as it's outlaid, outlined. Um, I think it should be noted that the interim president there announced after the fact that they would be, the university would have been conducting an independent investigation. Now, the first part of this to me, and to be totally transparent, the only the only um, element of this that I really have any kind of real unique insight into, I guess, would be the Darius Geis piece. Because uh, when we worked on the book, and this is about six months ago, when the Geis stuff um, in the book was when I asked him about Darius Geis as a player, when I asked him about Darius Geis in 2016, uh, we talked about it. And... Um, I'd actually interviewed Darius Geis for the book, um, along with, I don't know, dozens of other people who were connected to the LSU program, whether they were players or coaches. Um, and with Geis, here's what, you know, I'll be honest, here's what I kind of struggle to, to, to process. Like if Ogeron actually knew of these things that, that Darius Geis, was accused of, um, I would, I, I just would not think he would have, if I asked him about Darius Geis and who he is and what kind of person he thinks he is, um, I don't think he would have gone there the way he did in the book at that point. I mean, now look, it's entirely possible people compartmentalize and maybe he's, he did that. Now I asked him after the fact, cause there was a USA today story about Darius guys a few weeks back or maybe a, a month back. Um, a few months back, I believe. Yeah. And I, Ogeron and I had talked then I asked him, he was like, I didn't know anything about it. 
about that, like in that regard. And so that part, I, I honestly kind of confused by because it, it, like I would think, and I'm, again, I'm just speaking, you know, honestly here, I would think if he actually knew some of this stuff, I just don't think you would go there and say it was like his book. He could have said, no, I don't want to, you know, elaborate. I'm not talking about Darius Geis or I don't want to go down that road on Darius Geis and, and left it at that. And I wouldn't have probably known much about it until um, and then might have read through it when the USA Today story a couple of months back had come out. Um or maybe it's, you know, something out of the Redskins timeline that would have come out. But, he you know, it, he didn't. And so that part, to me, doesn't add up. Um, some of the other things in the story, which I think are, you know, like I said, this, it's a lot of disturbing stuff. But that doesn't represent well, certainly from an LSU standpoint, is there's a story of an engineering major who was uh, had an alleged attacker who was a non-athlete. And the, you know, according to the USA Today story, the university just delayed and delayed and failed to protect this woman uh, until she, you know, as if she was going to give up on this. And it was a, you know, egregious situation from a Title IX violation standpoint. And it just looked like they were just horribly negligent at it. And again, this wasn't even involving, this isn't involving a football player or an athlete. This is just involving a regular student. Now, to me, the, the most, uh, the, the thing that I think has needs the most explanation is going to be when it relates to Drake Davis, who was a big recruit, he never ended up, you know, I don't think you're not going to find a lot of highlights of him on the field. Like Darius guys was a star player there. Drake Davis didn't turn out to do that, but there is text messages between him and Verge Osbury who's a high up uh, athletic department official going back to April of 2018. And after that, I guess LSU had filed its title nine report, but man, what, you know, you wonder what took so long for them to expel him. And that speaks to a, a university wide, you know, problem. And I, I think that they, that's got to be a, a big part of their investigation going forward. Um, you know, I think right now, one of the things that I think you could look at is, okay, some of these players who ended up, because I think there was at least three of them, Peter Parrish, who's a former quarterback, Zach Sheffer, who was a former tight end, um, and I'm blanking on who the third one was. Oh, Tay Provins or Provins, who was a former running back. Those guys, I think, you know, was there any red flags in in the recruiting process that maybe they shouldn't have been recruited? I think that's an issue because, like, from my understanding is when those guys got into trouble, they were dismissed from the team. I think Tate Provins was already in the transfer portal when things blew up with him. So... I think a lot of these are, I think what's, what to me in my read, um, is the Baylor scandal as it was, you had coaches and related to Art Riles that were involved in the, in the process of the, uh, not just in, in the, 
in the police reporting of this and how some of these things were handled. I mean, supposedly football coaches and universities and athletic departments were supposed to, you know, learn from that and say, hey, these are Title IX issues. We're going to let the Title IX process handle it. And we're not supposed to be involved with that. So, I mean, if you listen to what they're saying at LSU, at least that's what their stance was. They were not involved in the process and the Title IX process seems to have failed. So I think, again, I think this investigation that they're, in, that they're going to conduct, I think will probably be more illuminating on that front. There's a lot of similarities to Baylor in terms of the, what seems to be just a complete breakdown on the university level of how they handle these cases. And there's some pretty, uh, you know, really repulsive details in here. Uh, for instance, um, a tennis player who was being, uh, who was in an abusive relationship and seven LSU officials had direct knowledge. This was with Drake Davis and they just, they just sat on it. And, you know, unfortunately I think with sexual violence, a lot of times there's an instinct uh, to, to not believe uh, the accuser or to, um, I don't know, just like not absolve yourself of responsibility in it. And if that's the case, and if this investigation finds that that, that happened, uh, people will be fired. There was a uh, follow-up USA Today article, and uh, I mean, this has certainly taken the campus by storm. Uh, several student groups uh, wrote an open letter um, demanding the resignation of LSU officials. There's going to be a protest on Friday. Uh, so at the university level, it's it's going to be a really big problem for LSU, as it should be. In terms of football and the athletic department, you know, I do think that's a key distinction. I made it in the mailbag that at least in this article, there's no allegation that Ed Ogeron or any of the coaches knew of something and didn't report it. Um, they, they clearly, I think the USA Today writers are probably very careful, as they should be, about making that distinction. Um, and I want to be as well. Whereas with Baylor, you know, there were text messages between Art Bryles and uh, the athletic director, Ian McCaw, about, oh, I hope, I hope we can, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't sexual assault, but it was something one of their players got in trouble for. I hope we can, you know, keep this under wraps. Or um, the Pepper Hamilton report uh, said that, uh, you know, coaching staff would, like, basically try to conduct their own investigations. Like, anything to keep it from actually, you know, getting out and, them having, and losing the players. And, and that's, you know, that's a heinous scandal. Um, that's not what necessarily is being alleged here, but of course, somebody could listen to what you said about, um, Darius Geis and, and obviously have skepticism and say, I mean, he's the star running back. He was twice accused of rape. How could the coaches not know that? You know, how could that, they know everything. They know everything their players do. We heard this a lot with, um, Urban Meyer, like, you know, it, people don't believe it when the coach says, Oh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Um, because they, they tend to. They're very detail oriented. They tend to know these things, so I can understand why people would be skeptical. But I'm also personally very careful about not accusing somebody of something that that serious unless we have some sort of evidence. I think there's there's a couple of these like there they are on a case by case basis. I mean, the Jacob Phillips case um, that was investigated by the Baton Rouge Police Department, and so I don't know in that case where if they don't find anything. Or they, if they don't substantiate it, or I, you know, the specifics of that case, uh, does LSU basically say, okay, we're gonna, we're going to just dismiss this player from the program? Um, 
you know, I, again, I think that's, that goes into a different place, um, on that than some of these other ones, the Drake Davis one to me. And that was the, the really the centerpiece of this story is problematic on a bunch of different levels. Um, and it is again, and this is not a player who was like, who was like on the field. And this wasn't like where it was a star player in the middle of it. And they're, you know, you're just like, it does, it didn't make a lot of sense of, of how much of a breakdown in the process this was. But then again, like I said, in that story, they, they reference an engineering major story and that involved a non-athlete who was her alleged attacker. And you just see a complete failure of the university's process in protecting that woman. And so again, I, I, I think that we'll see what they come out with the, with the independent investigation. But again, I think one of the things that is, that is going to be interesting to see going forward is how much do people, um, learn from this in this process? Because again, this is, we're in a different place than we were 10 years ago. And as you mentioned with the Baylor case, I mean, it doesn't, this is a different, this is a different aspect than that. Correct. There's a lot of heightened attention as there should be uh, heightened scrutiny over issues like this. So, I mean, I would assume this will, will, um, this will not be taken lightly on the LSU campus, nor should it be. I think the only thing I would just bring up real quick, you, you alluded to it is with, with the football program is um, nine players in, in four years is a lot to be, I mean, they're certainly not the only program to have uh, to, to unfortunately have a player or players accused of sexual violence or domestic abuse um, or just general off the field problems. But that's a lot of players in a short amount of time. And so it does raise the question you, you alluded to it um, about their recruiting and are they putting enough emphasis on character? Sometimes, well, some of these, there's are- just no way to predict, right? Like there's just nothing you couldn't possibly predict in the recruiting process that something like this would happen. But other times staffs do take chances on, uh, guys with some question marks if they think they are going to uh, be difference-making players. Yeah. Now, look, some of these guys also, Drake Davis was a Les Miles recruit. Darius Geis was a Les Miles recruit. Devin Godshaw was a Les Miles recruit. Um, so some of these guys, it's, it may be in a four-year cycle, but you know, some of those guys were were recruited by the previous staff. I don't doubt that if Ed Ogeron was the head coach at LSU at the time, I'd be very surprised if he didn't recruit Darius Geis, who's from Baton Rouge. Drake Davis, everybody recruited back then. I don't, you know, I assume Godshaw he would have recruited too. But again, that's, you know, that four-year cycle just is a distinction. It's, it's, and it doesn't make it any, any more right. Um, and I don't know what, you know, if, if you were to talk to people in Florida, if they had red flags on Zach Sheffer, or if you talk to people in Alabama, did they have red flags about Peter Parrish. I don't, I couldn't tell you that. Um, but that is, I, I think that is also a, a, um, you know, is, is something that, you know, look, these, these schools have big, big recruiting staffs and are there things they know? Maybe that maybe these players didn't have anything in their past, but you know, that would say that they would be somebody to, to be worried from a sexual violence standpoint. I don't, you know, we don't know that, but I think that is, that is certainly a, a valid discussion point. All in all, um, you know, LSU had this dream season last year and 
um, I remember there were, there were, um, I mean, just there was never a better time to be an LSU football fan than in 2019. 2020 has brought a uh, miserable season on the field, uh, NCAA sanctions, and now um, a pretty serious investigation into sexual misconduct uh, allegations. So just complete 180 in terms of everything around the LSU football program in a very short amount of time. Staying in the SEC, but turning to a much different subject matter, South Carolina came open um, shortly after we did our Sunday podcast, actually. I think we, we talked on there about, do you think they'll fire uh, Will Muschamp? And then it happened a few hours later. Um, you put out your list of coaching candidates. Lots of people put out their list of coaching candidates. Obviously, Hugh Freeze, who we've talked about on here before, was at or near the top of all of them. Um, I don't know. How realistic do you think it is that on both sides, that they would go after him, that he would take it? Uh, are there other names you think are mo- that they would – that South Carolina would be more interested in than him. From what I'm hearing, Stu, and this is in our story on the athletic, I think there's real interest going to be in Billy Napier, who spent a, about a decade in that state as a coach on the Clemson staff, but also played college ball at Furman, um, has done a really good job at Louisiana, learned a lot help on with his time on Nick Saban's staff. Now, he's passed up other opportunities he is definitely somebody who's on the radar. Steve Sarkeesian, former USC and Washington head coach, who's now at Alabama's OC. I know he's definitely on the radar. Uh, the the ones with those, and I'll start with them before we get to freeze. I wonder if they look at this job and say, all right, I'm going to jump for that job. You know, if I'm Steve Sarkeesian, he's passed up. He could have been the head coach, I think, at Mississippi State, at Colorado. He's passed up power five jobs. Do you look at that job? And and granted, uh, South Carolina has new facilities that are really, really strong. They have a great home field environment, but they are in the same state as Clemson, and that's not going to be easy to recruit against. So, you know, it's possible that if you're Billy Napier or Hugh Freeze, and Hugh Freeze is 8-0 and I will, I'm on record of saying this. I think if Hugh Freeze is the head coach at South Carolina or if Hugh Freeze is the head coach at Tennessee, I think he would have them in the top 25 and the top 20 uh, within two years. I think he would do that well there. But if you're him or Billy Napier, do you look at the SEC landscape and go, hmm, if I wait a year, I probably have a really good chance at Tennessee or I might have a good chance at Auburn, which those are better jobs, I think. And I would imagine they think so that plays into it. A couple other candidates to throw at you, uh, Jeff Munkin, the head coach at army. He knows the president of South Carolina who came from West point, obviously a really good coach has done really well wherever he's been. Uh, Jamie Chadwell, who's done a terrific job at coastal Carolina is down there. Now he's never coached at anywhere at the power five level. That is certainly a concern. Jay Norvell from Nevada, who has done a really good job there, I know, is a, is a candidate getting consideration. Um, you know, maybe they look at a Skip Holtz, who's at Louisiana Tech, and obviously his dad coached there um, years ago. And I did, his dad did leave the place on probation when he was there after he left. But um, Skip Holtz has done a really good job at Louisiana Tech. I, I could see if they start struggling to find some of these other guys, Skip Holtz might look more attractive to them. So 
of those names, because I don't think they're getting Joe Brady, and I heard they, they had interest in Joe Brady. I don't see Joe Brady doing it. And I'm not sure if Tony Elliott from Clemson would go go up against Dabo and against his alma mater to do it. Who of those do you think, A, do you think is the most attractive in your eyes, and B, do you think sounds the most realistic? Well, I, there, you know, I think um, I think that I said last, I think Billy Napier would be a home run. Um Jamie Chadwell, what he's, I don't, I'm not as familiar with him. He's, he's kind of, uh, emerging this year as a name because coastal Carolina is doing so well, but it right there in the same state makes a lot of sense. The one I'm more curious about that you kind of mentioned just in passing at the end is Tony Elliott, because it's always been a mystery to me. First of all, why I mean, Jeff Scott finally got the USF job this past year, but up until that, you know, these two guys have been at the heart of the, of the entire Dabo Clemson run, um, especially after Chad Morris uh, took the SMU job and they became co-OCs. And yet it took until last year for Jeff Scott to get a job. He got, I'd say it's a pretty good. It's a good job. job. It's a very good five job. But Tony Elliott is is still there. And I don't know that he's even really ever gotten traction for a major job like that. Now, some would say kind of like we talked about with Luke Fickle a few weeks back, would a a Clemson guy really go to South Carolina? And I can't, 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 guess on that but certainly the guy should be getting more serious consideration for jobs like this i think some sometimes do that some of the jobs that that assistants are offered may not be good enough for them but there still could be pretty good jobs i mean jeff scott got a really good group of five job that he has ties to i'm not sure if it was a from my understanding if it was a sunbelt conference usa kind of job which typically a lot of guys land on. I'm not sure some of these guys were let it be known that they were that interested in those jobs. Right. So I think that factors into it. I mean, look, the guy who got just got fired at South Carolina, Will Muschamp is one of the rare fortunate ones who landed on a plum power five job without ever having been a head coach. I mean, urban Meyer started out at Bowling Green. I mean, it's rare when you have a Bob Stoops, and Bob Stoops certainly worked out. But, uh, you know, Will Muschamp didn't work out twice, right? He didn't work out at Florida, and that Charlie Weiss got a huge job, and that was a disaster. I mean, I'm not saying that, that you know, look, Bob Stoops, it worked out. But a lot of times, guys who, you know, if they're sitting on hoping for what Kirby Smart got, those, those opportunities are few and far between. Right. You know, so I think that's that you have to keep that in mind. And I think before somebody's going to give you the keys to a big, big job, I mean, Ron Zook got a big, big job. It didn't work out well at Florida. So I think that, you know, that I think those, those are big gambles, especially with what these contracts look like nowadays, too. You know, I bring up Tony Elliott for another reason, and that is I think this comes up every year during the coaching carousel. We all agree that college football, uh, college football's track record on diversity is pretty terrible uh, in coaching hires. And it's because of like stuff like you just mentioned that Will Muschamp gets a, a second chance at another job before a Tony Elliott gets his first or Steve Adazio, who not only got fired by BC, but former players couldn't wait to, to go on Twitter and pile on. And then he gets a job at Colorado state um, instead of somebody up and coming who, um, who deserves it. So, um, again, like Billy Napier is perfectly deserving candidate at this point. He has 
uh, head coaching experience. Same with Jamie Chadwell. Um, but if we're ever going to break this cycle, I think it kind of starts with this part of the process, right? A job comes open. Everybody throws out names of candidates. We don't actually know who Ray Tanner is going to talk to or offer. We're just making educated guesses and um, making sure we don't recycle the same list of names, right? Yeah. I mean, look, one of the names I heard that they have interest in is Jay Norvell. So it's not like, um, and it's entirely possible Tony Elliott may not be interested in the job. They may be interested in him. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's exactly accurate to, to make this like South Carolina doesn't want anything to do with Tony Elliott because they would, we have no idea. Yeah. So, um, so I would just kind of leave it at that. It does seem like the PAC 12, their model has been as, as come further than other places where we see Jimmy Lake was a really well-regarded coordinator. Now it helped that he was already in the building and he got promoted to a really good job at Washington. Um, you know, David Shaw, same thing, really well-regarded was in the building. He got promoted to what was a really good job, Stanford. So, I mean, it's happened, it's happened in the PAC 12 we don't, we just haven't seen it happen. You know, Miami, Randy Shannon got the Miami job. Um, there's, there's some examples of it, but there's, there's less. I mean, like you said, Will Muschamp is a, certainly an example of that, but, um, in full context, it's like, you know, it's definitely something to keep on the radar. All right. Well, there are some great games this weekend. Uh, looking forward to, uh, what's being referred to as the Big Ten semifinals, right? Ohio State, Indiana, and Wisconsin, Northwestern, the four undefeated teams left. Um, what else? A uh, Bedlam, Saturday night. Uh, any? What other games catch your attention? Let's talk about, you know, Ohio State, Indiana. Realistically, um, would you be shocked if Indiana goes in there and beats them? Shocked? No. Uh anything's possible right now. And, and I do think that, I think that there's this kind of blanket assumption that Ohio state is, uh, untouchable. And I actually think that they have some flaws that can be exposed that this isn't necessarily, I mean, last year's team was so, so dominant. Uh, they do still have possibly the best quarterback in the country, but there are areas on their defense and certainly the running backs are a little underwhelming. I guess where I'm skeptical is, and I wrote about this in the mailbag, is Indiana, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to rain on the Cinderella story here. Is Indiana as good as their ranking indicates, or is there maybe a little bit of, it's a little bit inflated in that, and Vegas certainly thinks it is because they're a 20 point underdog. They have scored a lot of points off of turnovers, 51 points off of turnovers in four games. And while some coaches would tell you they, I mean, a lot of coaches think turnovers are something you can just, you know, drill and drill and manufacture. Others will tell you it's just a lot of luck. Um, Justin Fields does not throw interceptions. And, and Indiana's got those great DBs. Justin Fields uh, doesn't even throw incompletions at this point. <laughs> I know. I mean, Indiana has had 10 interceptions in four games. Their cornerbacks are great. But I guess that can they, this is another level, guard, you know, defending. Um, those Ohio state receivers defending Justin Fields. So I guess I'm skeptical that they can totally keep them in check. Um, but like I said, I think on the, on the podcast a few days ago, I think that Indiana's got a great quarterback who could um, give Ohio state trouble. 
Yeah, uh, I'm excited to see it. Obviously, our big noon kickoff crew will be there. I will not be there, but the rest of the crew will be in Columbus. Um, here's what else I'm very interested to see, and I'm going to get to the last one, the, the probably the first one last. Um, I'm very curious to see uh, Cincinnati at UCF. Cincinnati has a terrific defense. Our colleague Chris Vanitti did a really good story talking to coaches in the league and the AAC about them. Obviously, UCF has an excellent quarterback and a really dynamic offense. Uh, I want to see that. I am interested to see UCLA at Oregon. UCLA looked pretty good on defense for the first time in like 10 years, albeit against a Cal team that was you know, kind of got a curveball, just like UCLA did, I guess, to play that Sunday game. And I think Oregon's offense is really good. And I, I think Joe Moorhead's a good fit there. And then the third one, which is obviously the one that is closest to your heart, Wisconsin at Northwestern. So will you be like, with like a case of Coors Light ready to watch this thing on what is going to be 1230 your time? I mean, as much as I do love a good Coors Light, uh, that's uh it's a working saturday uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting um there was a stat in uh jesse temple's uh story that i when i read it i have well, that's wrong i i better go tell tell jesse because that's definitely wrong uh which was first time they've played as both as top 20 teams since 1962 i'm like no there's been several games recently where they were both ranked both ranked yes both in the top 20 no uh, so that's pretty amazing. First since 1962. I think Northwestern's got a great defense this year. Um, they've got some defense. They've got linebackers who've been playing there for seemingly forever, like Patty Fisher and Blake Gallagher. Greg Newsom is a uh, lockdown corner uh, who did a great job on David Bell from Purdue last week. Um, they've had some some disruptive defensive ends, but Wisconsin's got always has a great defense. So could be like a 17 to 15 kind of game, but you know, I, I would I would pick Wisconsin. I think after watching what they did to Michigan, um, how could you pick against them right now? I don't know. It was very impressive. I it's definitely on my radar. I'm excited to see what happens in this one too. So very very exciting day coming. I think in the Big Ten on Saturday. And what do you make of Bedlam? Because Oklahoma State's the higher ranked team. Oklahoma State. Uh, I mean, Oklahoma. I feel like Oklahoma just disappeared off the face of the earth after they lost two games and won Red River. Uh, people haven't really been following them that closely, but they've been back to putting up 62 points on people and um, got the guys, finally got the guys back from NCAA suspension. I think they've made a difference. Mike Gundy's 2-13 and 13 all time against Oklahoma. So even though this seems like, okay, well, this is their chance. This, they've got a really good team this year. I kind of think Oklahoma rolls. I do too. Um, now look, it's hard to get read too much into the last couple of weeks because, you know, those two teams they scored 62 against and blew out both of them. Texas Tech, probably the third worst team in the Big 12 and Kansas, by far the worst team in the Big 12. But yeah, I mean, Ronnie Perkins, Ramadre Stevens, those are two of the, they may be the two best players on each side of the ball in the program. Um, I think Spencer Rattler has had time to continue to, to, get more comfortable uh, in this system and in, in quite honestly in college football and getting more reps. I think this is going to be a good statement game for Oklahoma as well. I feel like they have a chance to really kind of show people, all right, you guys wrote us off because we were shaky and struggling. And now 
um, we're going to show you that we're the best team in the in the Big 12. And I think there's, they know the eyeballs are going to be on them. They've had a good run in Bedlam. I mean, I, our crew did that game last year in Oklahoma State, albeit with some injuries. Um, felt very good about going into that game, and OU just dominated. And I, I feel like it could be more of the same this, this Saturday night. Oklahoma State's got a really good defense, and if they can – um, if they can get to Spencer Rattler and force uh, some of the turnovers, the mistakes he made in those early games, then they've got a shot. Um, but it just seems like when these teams meet, I mean, there's only, like I said, Oklahoma State's won twice. I was at one of them. It was the 2011 game at the end of the season when they were the number three team in the country and they had uh, Justin Blackman and, and Brandon Whedon. That was a great team. And then there was the one in 2014 where uh, – Bob Stoops made the mistake of kicking to Tyree Kill, and he returned it for a touchdown, and they won. Um, other than that, it's not been a very competitive rivalry. So we'll see if the Cowboys can change that on Saturday night. Look forward to breaking down all these games on Sunday morning. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.